0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer for the podcast. Today's episode is episode number 246. And just a reminder to please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also check out our YouTube channel. Pretty much since the beginning of 2020, all of our podcasts are also visual, they're also video recorded and that's on our YouTube channel by the same name, The Addiction Podcast Point of No Return. If you have a story to share with us, please go to our website, The Addiction Podcast Point of No Return, no, sorry, just TheAddictionPodcast.com and reach out to us and we would love to hear your story. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Lee Steinberg. Lee is probably most known as an American sports agent, but he is also a philanthropist and an author. He has represented over 300 professional athletes in football, baseball, basketball, boxing, and Olympic sports. He has represented the number one overall pick in the NFL draft a record eight times. He's often credited as the real-life inspiration of the sports agent from Cameron Crowe's film Jerry Maguire in 1996. He's also a philanthropist, and I want to hear him tell us a lot more about that. So let's talk to Lee Steinberg. Lee Steinberg, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and telling us your story.
1: My pleasure.
0: I know you're a busy dude. So take us back to the beginning. Tell us a little bit about you, where you grew up. Um, I know that you're, you had problems with alcohol, and how did that all come about?
1: A lot later in life. Um, and we actually didn't have alcohol in our house when I was growing up. I never saw either of my parents take a drink. We don't have it as a genetic marker. Um, I grew up in West Los Angeles, uh, to a father who was a high school principal in the LA City Schools and a mother who was a librarian. And my father's uh, chief avocation was being president of the Los Angeles City Human Relations Commission. So I was brought up with two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family And the second was try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So I was hardwired to, to change the word word, world for the better.
0: Wow. I I like that. I like to hear that. That's awesome. Sorry. Go ahead. Um,
1: So I went to uh, Hamilton high in West Los Angeles and then a year to UCLA. And then it was the late sixties and, uh, the vortex of all student activity was Berkeley. And uh, it, it was a time where people were having their hair longer and wearing tie dye and work shirts and, and sexual liberation and rock music and alternative uh, herbal substances. And uh, the big fight was against the war in uh, Vietnam. And so I ended up student body president when Ronald Reagan was governor and he and I used to duke it out. And um, so I learned everything I needed to learn about negotiating from, uh, from governor Reagan. And I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dorm and they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students was the quarterback on the team and his name was Steve Bartkowski. And, um, In 1975, he was the first player selected overall in the NFL draft. And at that point, there really wasn't organized sports agentry. A team could hang up the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. and uh, But we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history. And uh, so I was going to do something in politics or uh, some form of – civil liberties or civil rights uh, law, or get some court experience, the Alameda County DA, but this altered all of that. And uh, when we arrived in Atlanta, I saw that there were clean lights in the sky to sign uh, the contract for Bartkowski the next day. And there was a huge crowd pressed up against the police line. It looked like a movie premiere. And the first thing we heard was we interrupt the Johnny Carson show to bring you a special news bulletin. Steve Bartkowski and his attorney have just arrived. We switch you live for an in-depth interview. So I realized I was in another world when it came to sports. And I saw that the uh, athletes were the movie stars and celebrities. And I thought, well, this could be a profession where if I have them retrace their roots to the high school uh, community and set up a scholarship fund or work for a church or boys and girls club. And then go to the collegiate institution where someone like Troy Aikman endowed a full scholarship at UCLA or Edgar and James at the University of Miami. And then at the pro level, set up a charitable foundation where... They would take some cause in their own life and put together a, a advisory board with the leading political figures, community leaders and business leaders to execute a program. So that's where work done, retired, running back, just put the hundred and seventy fifth single mother and their family into the first home they'll ever own by making a down payment and moving into it. So that's how it began.
0: Wow. So you you. I know pretty much, I mean, we're in Tampa, Florida, so we're Bucks fans. And I know that when we we go to the game, it's like every player has a charity. So you were kind of almost like the spearhead of that to get these guys giving back.
1: Well, so Warwick Dunn played for the yes. Buccaneers. Yes. And had a safety, John Lynch, who played for the Buccaneers. Both of them established big, uh, way back. Steve Young played for the Buccaneers. Wow. And uh, currently, I have a running back, Ronald Jones, who has uh, a big charity back at his high school who plays for the Bucks.
0: Wow. I, that's awesome. That's just awesome that you did that.
1: So that's basically been it. And it's also messaging. It's understanding that athletes can trigger imitative behavior, especially in rebellious adolescents. So when I represented the heavyweight champion um, Lennox Lewis in boxing, we had him do a public service announcement that said real men don't hit women. Wow. And that could do more for domestic violence education for young kids than a thousand authority figures ever could.
0: Yep. 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 I mean, athletes are heroes. And so what they say is is listened to. That's that's awesome. So you were an attorney.
1: Yes, I am an attorney. You are an, ad,
0: sorry, you are an attorney. It, it's a okay.
1: specialized, uh, it's sports law. So okay. uh, if I negotiate contracts uh, for playing or contracts for endorsements, it's just a different type of client.
0: Understood. Understood. Okay, so that's, that was kind of your whole game. And then how did you then end up with a a problem with alcohol? How did that happen? How did it come about?
1: So I was one beer Steinberg early in life. (laughs) And uh, I used to be able to drink a beer and not get through the whole thing and push it back. Um, But I lived in a world that was a wash in alcohol so that in pro sports, there are banquets, there are um, all sorts of activities that revolve around drinking. But still, it wasn't a problem. In the, late, um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, a series of events happened in my personal life. So my kids were diagnosed with retinitis, pigmentosa which is an eye disease leading to total blindness oh. and there's no cure. Um, I lost my father on a long death to uh, cancer oh. that, and he was sort of the rock in my life. Um, we lost a home. We live in a beach community here in Newport Beach to mold that infested our home and we had to knock it to the ground and then I started to experience problems in my marriage and nothing in work ever Destabilized me. I knew coming into the office every day that there would be notwithstanding great preparation, that there would be aberrational events that would occur that would knock it off. That's just part of business. But I felt like Gulliver tethered down on the beach by Lilliputians because I couldn't do anything to save my father and save my, uh, uh kids from blindness and, and and provide a home. And it, I know it was grandiosity to think I could, but I'd always felt like as long as I had a chance to problem solve, uh, I didn't have to have it work all the time, but I, at least I had a chance and this wasn't happening. So I started out drinking late at night and then when I broke up with my wife, I found a very stunning thing because I moved into my first apartment and I found out it was legal to consume alcohol while it was light outside. And late at night, I couldn't build up much of an alcohol level. But now that I was depressed and untethered and I found out you can drink during the day and it did allow me to uh, get high, high levels going and it snuck up on me. Um, I didn't really understand alcoholism. I didn't know that my brain had fundamentally changed so that um, I became allergic to alcohol and it became never safe to do it. And eventually um, I realized I had a problem and I closed down my office and gave my practice to the younger agents. I closed down my condo And I went back to my parents' house uh, in West Los Angeles and I was sitting on my father's bed. And my only thought in my mind was where I could find more vodka. Mm. And um, my life had been reduced to that. And at a certain moment I had an epiphany and a sense of proportionality that I wasn't a starving peasant in Sudan. That I didn't have the last name Steinberg in the 30s in Nazi Germany, that I wasn't sick in any fundamental way that wasn't was not self-induced. And what excuse did I have to not live up to my father's goals? So I went into sober living, I worked a 12-step program, I got a sponsor. Uh, I surrendered to the concept that I was powerless over the effect that alcohol had, and I I couldn't ever drink safely again. And um, I surrounded myself with a unique fellowship, and um, I I had a world of uh, detritus and and, uh, uh, destruction. So I owed like $4.9 million dollars. Um, I didn't have a practice. I was not certified any longer to be an agent. I I let my certification draft. And so there was this massive hill that was necessary to climb. And um, I think it's Sophocles or one of the Greek (laughs) gods pushes a boulder up a hill Yep. Every time you think that you pushed it and you gained some traction, it rolls back on you so that it wasn't a straight uh, shot. But, um, um, and that was, um, then I had to reform a, a business. I had uh, frayed my relationship, especially with my middle child. And I had to reconstruct that. And um Uh, But in 2013, I got refunded to set up a new sports and entertainment agency and, uh, you know, ended up um, in last year doing the biggest sports contract of all time for a player named Patrick Mahomes. And eventually... um, things got better and I've done a whole series of health treatments from hyperbaric oxygen to light stem to a process called RTMS because I inherently knew that that had to have done some some damage to my body and um, um, so I faced it got a brain spec did all the things I could do to to speed up the regenerative healing process. And uh, I'm now rolling along in my 11th year.
0: That's awesome. That uh, I mean, that's amazing. You are listening to the addiction podcast point of no return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at the Addiction Podcast at Yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman A certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Ryan Schwab is a Florida native who grew up in Palm Beach County. He never had a father figure for guidance, so he joined the school of hard knocks, spending most of his life in the streets. As happens with so many young people, he was then introduced to alcohol and drugs, He lost his self-respect became a slave to drugs went through multiple treatments detoxes incarcerations and pure hell now clean and sober five years later ryan gives hope to others through his podcast life lessons and struggles over coffee please subscribe to his podcast on spotify or apple podcast now i am assuming that when you did the 12-step program you like just quit drinking cold turkey, right?
1: Oh, from the mo- moment in March uh, 21st, 2010 was my sobriety date. And since then, um, I haven't um, used alcohol.
0: Wow, but the reason I bring that up is because we know from a lot of the interviews that we've done that sometimes detoxing off of alcohol can, it can be deadly. I mean, people can die. So the fact that you were it, it, yeah, able it, to it, do it, I mean, wow. So I,
1: I'm in the Guinness Book of Records for the most relapse prior to 2010. I okay. mean, there's a, <laughs> there's probably a statue that says the most relapse. But um, when I would come down off of alcohol, I didn't um, go through any of the horror show that I saw other people do. It's just a matter of chemistry. And one of the problems was that I never got heavily hung over because I don't love pain. And and if I had only gotten hung over after a binge, um, I mean, I didn't feel 100%, but I didn't have the splitting headache and all the rest of it. I never had the shakes. It's just, um, I could have, It's I was just lucky.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, very, very well done on all the years of sobriety. I I know it's not easy. There's a gentleman that I follow on Instagram who is in recovery, and every day he says it's day 490. Now it's day 491. So I know that it can be like that. And you said you used to measure it in days, but now you can measure it in years, which is very well, cool. Well, yeah, I
1: went from days and <laughs> then months. And yeah. Look, I don't think anybody would ever be able to to rehabilitate themselves if the cravings didn't leave. And so that first part, well, it's sort of like at the first you go through a pink cloud where everything's great because you don't have alcohol. Then you get to the point where the cravings are there. And so you have to deal with that because what alcohol did to my brain was um, something where it took away the prefrontal lobe judgment. And so I might sit in front of my condo and say, tonight I'm not going to drink. And magically, 15 minutes later, I had driven to the liquor store and I had a big bottle of vodka. Now, how did that happen? I was sitting there saying, I'm not going to drink. And so at a certain level, it, it, Goes to the amygdala in the back of your brain, which is responsible for all autonomic events. Right? You don't need somebody to tell you you have to go to the bathroom, or you have to breathe. Right. Right. Or uh, you know, a whole series of actions. And and alcohol became like that for me. The wow. brain, my brain conflated the need for alcohol with breath itself.
0: Wow. Interesting. But you conquered it, and you're here today. No, well, I'm,
1: a, I'm a, you know what what I am, Joni, is I'm a bun in the oven and, <laughs> and I'm just cooking. Okay, and, and you um, know, we
0: usually say that about babies and pregnant women. Right. Okay, yes. okay, just no, I'm a <laughs> bun in the
1: oven and okay. uh, I, I've got a, a temporary respite from all that based on my spiritual condition, yeah. and um, but um, I look at the guys with much more time, sort of as professors. (laughs) And when I went off to sober living and to meetings, all I did was listen to the hope and experience of those people.
0: That's awesome. And, you know, just by telling us your story, you're giving hope to other people. So thank you for doing that.
1: Well, so if someone is out there depressed, destabilized, and starting to get hopeless because of an addiction to alcohol, just know there's help available. And um, um, I went to the bottom depths and um, things are better now. And it can be better for you too.
0: That's awesome. I mean, that's a perfect message. It's right before Christmas. So that's a perfect message to give people even though you, you may celebrate Hanukkah and not Christmas. It's still, it's a good... It's we a good celebrate Christmas. both. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: Christmachah.
0: Yeah, oh, Chris, say that again? Christmachah. Christmachah, okay. I think we do that too, because because Steve was raised in the Jewish faith and I was raised as a Protestant. So yeah, Christmachah. Okay, that's what we celebrate.
1: My kids were the luckiest kids in the world. They got eight <laughs> nights of Hanukkah and then they got stockings and Christmas <laughs> presents.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, you gave us a great message for everybody. Lee, talk just a little bit about some of the philanthropy that you do currently, and then I will let you go.
1: So, in the uh, NFL, um, we've got probably the most talented player, Patrick Mahomes, quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. We have another quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, whose name is Tua Tongo Vailoa. We have a quarterback for uh, the Washington Redskins named Taylor uh, uh, Heineke uh, who starts for them. We have the starting running back for the Rams named Daryl Henderson. Um, We've got um, just a, a whole variety of players. I mean, over time, I now have 12 players in football in the Hall of Fame, but I had a big baseball practice, big basketball practice. I did heavyweight champs like Lennox Lewis and Oscar De La Hoya. Um, in baseball, we have a number of Hall of Fame players. So it's been um, all of that, but- um,
0: And do they uh, all do charity? Do they all have their own foundations?
1: So in the initial meeting that I would have with them, i talk out, their ability to leave a legacy. <clears throat> and the enemy, Joni, of athletes is self-absorption. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, enough about me. Can we talk about how you feel about me? That's self-absorption. <laughs> and so what we're trying to do is to prepare them for second career and prepare an athlete for um, to be a citizen in, in the world. And so These programs help them achieve that because um, they see themselves in a larger way. So one of the first things I'll say to an athlete is, if you broke your leg tomorrow or you could no longer play, what other skills do you have? So three of my former players actually own parts of NFL football teams. Uh Others of them are big successes in hedge funds or own uh, businesses. Some of them in broadcast, but you're ultimately my job's not done until they 're successfully ensconced in a second career
0: I think that's awesome, and I wonder, just kind of thinking here if the if that helps the athletes that you represent maybe have a lower risk of um, of developing some sort of substance abuse because they have other purpose in their life than just playing the sport. Because we know from a couple of the athletes that we talked to, um, Randy Grimes, former buccaneer especially, where, you know, he said uh, painkillers are, you know, kind of like part of the job description. And, you know, there there was a situation where he became a full-on addict, and then when he, when he was, could no longer play, that was what he did. Now, of course, he has pro athletes in recovery and has a whole other dimension to his life. But I'm wondering if you instilling that in these athletes at the get-go helps them maybe be less likely to become addicted to drugs.
1: You know, that's our hope. Now, um, the use of opiates is painkillers. Let's take a game like football. It's a traffic accident on every play. And I've had players who, like Randy, became addicted in the hospital, came out you know, addicted to Vicodin to or uh, hillbilly heroin. Uh-huh. And um, so that, you know, that's been difficult. But they do have progressive uh, drug and alcohol programs. Um, and part of the problem post-career is lack of structure. Uh-huh. So athletes thrive on structure. They know what they're doing every day. They know when they're working out. They know when they're practicing. They know when to get on a plane. They have itineraries that lay everything out for them. And all of a sudden, they retire, and the structure's gone. And um, so what we're trying to do is provide structure and second career um, so that that they're not disoriented.
0: I think that's awesome. I think everything you're doing is awesome, Lee. And I think that your story of recovery is one that will give people hope. As you said, there's hope available. And if, if Lee can do it the way he did it, you know, you can do it too.
1: And even though um, I have had continuous sobriety for the last um, 11 years plus, um, there was a period where I kept relapsing. And so the other part of this is don't give up. Life will push you back. But the question is, can you be resilient? Can you, in the midst of, um, of you know, negative consequences, can you visualize a better future? I'm just the sort of person who if there's a barn filled with defecation, you know, pony poop, thinks there's a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> So you've got to have that vision that there's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: That's huge. Lee, thank you so much for talking to us today.
1: My you pleasure. Have a
0: couple books. I'm going to put up your book covers because that might be inspirational to people. But um, I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today because it's a great story. You're a great you. speaker.
1: Yeah, keep up the good work you're doing because um, the Addiction Podcast can help people change their lives.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. It's the 23rd of December. In two days, it's Christmas. And our wish for you is that you or your loved ones are clean and sober, and that 2022 is a completely different year for you and yours. If you've lost someone to addiction, our heartfelt sorrow goes out for you and our love and our care for you. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast point of no return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.